welcome to another gloriously lo-fi episode of the Palace Cinemas podcast. I'm Alex Moyer, National Marketing Manager for Palace Cinemas, and telephoning in from Melbourne is our Astor Theatre General Manager, Dr. Zach Hepburn, and from Brisbane, our Queensland State Manager, Jordan Bastian. This week we discuss our favourite cinema experiences of 2020 so far, what we love from 2019 that you can now catch at home, and what film we're looking forward to most once this isolation madness ends. Despite it being a shortened 2020 cinematic season, uh, what have we um, loved the most? Uh, look, uh, Alex, a, a film that really grabbed me early on in the year, uh, and I, I suppose really is one of the last films I kind of almost saw in cinema, was um, uh, The Lighthouse, the Robert Eggers film. Uh, I just think that film is uh, a masterpiece of tone and, and style and uh, you know, it's got a, a, a fantastic aspect ratio too. The old standard uh, one three three to one aspect ratio. You don't often see that, and if you get to see it, hopefully it's masked correctly uh, in, in uh, a cinema as well. Because uh, uh, you know, the, the, the dying out of presentation sometimes films aren't masked correctly. But um, I think that's one of the main reasons why I love the film so much. Is it, it's it's um, so aesthetically pleasing, and and Eggers is just put all these different stylistic flourishes in it uh, down from the aspect ratio to the lighting and uh, you know my understanding of it it was all filmed on sort of very vintage camera equipment with kind of you know uh, vintage light bulbs and, and whatnot to give it that real sort of like um glow even though it's a, a very kind of industrial black and white film and um just the the, the incessant drone on the soundtrack of uh, seagulls and waves and and ships passing in the night and then of course uh it's responsible for 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 you know giving birth to the uh, aren't you a fan of my lobster memes which <laughs> you know made me very very happy uh in these uh you know strange and uh, unsure times that we're currently experiencing. So, um, yeah, that, that for me uh, was by far and away uh, the standout pick of uh, uh, 2020. Yeah, my like my favourite meme from The Lighthouse is how men deal with isolation, a picture from The Lighthouse, how women deal with isolation, a picture from Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And I was just like, <laughs> so true, so beautiful. And it was one of the last things you screened at the Astor, if memory yeah, we we did a double feature with his other film, The Witch, which um, was really popular. Like people people loved uh, seeing them, and funnily enough, that's also got a, an interesting aspect ratio as well. So uh, I'm noticing a trend uh, in his style. Um, I I was such a fan of The Lighthouse that actually it was one of the rare times I programmed the film twice. Uh, the second double feature that The Lighthouse was going to be a double feature with Phantom Thread. Oh. Which I was, I was so <laughs> excited about doing. Sadly, uh, we, we, we did have to close up uh, prior uh, to that screening occurring. And I don't know, there's just, there's just something about those two films where they, they really have nothing to do with one another and there's no real thematic connections at all, but they just click, following on probably from what we were talking about in the first episode about the kind of um, ideas of, 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 of doubles and the sort of thematic connections. Like there's no reason why they work, they just work. But Zach, when you and I first got to see, you were up in Sydney and we got to watch The Lighthouse in a, a small theatre at Universal. I think there was only about three of us in the room. Yeah. And it, it was, you know, it was brilliant. It was fantastic, but it wasn't a big audience. What was it like watching it again with an audience? It's it's funny because I think we, we remember that screening well when we saw it, Alex, because it was so early in the morning and we just sort of walked back out in the daylight and we completely kind of discombobulated about what we saw. People... Uh, when I saw it at the Astor with them, uh, 
they were really into it. And I think there's the, the, the film, uh, to use a, a nautical metaphor, the, 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 the film moves in waves and it's, it's interesting to kind of ride those waves with, with the audience because we had, you know, um, a couple of hundred people in, 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 that, in that session. And um, to, to hear them sort of like go into the film and kind of start to get in on jokes and, and kind of find it funny. And then that that humour just gets slowly eroded into madness and the audience uh, aren't quite sure what direction the film's going in. And I think you can kind of pick up on that frequency when you see it with a big crowd. So, um, yeah, I, like, look, it was it was great to see it again. And, it, yeah, it was a really fond memory of uh, one of the last communal cinema sessions I've been in. I've got to say my favourite uh, cinematic experience from 2020 so far was... Uh, the Invisible Man. Um, I'm not really a, a horror guy. I just thought it was so brilliantly put together, even from the very first scene of Elizabeth Moss's character trying to get out of bed. So tense and so simple and just like one of the best, what, 10 minutes of cinema of the last year? Absolutely. Like just so fantastically constructed. It was so great and I thought, you know, the way Winnell made empty rooms, the, the director that is Lee Winnell, made empty rooms feel terrifying. But, um, I mean, more so than that, it was really the communal experience that I was kind of loving, which I owe mostly to my wife who was sitting next to me <laughs> who was just freaking out during it and had her head buried in my shoulder for most of it saying, I want to leave, I want to leave. To the point where I was <laughs> leaning across to her saying, like, I'm actually slightly worried about you. Do you want to leave? And she was like, oh, no, no, no. But then, you know, screaming minutes later. But it was just one of the, the funnest cinema experiences I've had, but also genuinely terrifying. Well, I love the story of how that movie got made as well, where it was, you know, Lee Winnell got sent into a meeting with Jason Blum, not to talk about this at all, just what he thought was a general chat. And Blum threw it out there, I guess, because he works with Universal a lot and they wanted to do something with the series after The Mummy Taint. And he just straight off the cuff just, you know, nailed out this plot line. Apparently Blum just went, yeah, here's $8 million, get me. Just so simple and so good. And I think that the simplicity of the film is is the key to it because, like, you know, I, I, Lee Winnell has always been a really interesting filmmaker, but he's always, for me, been quite bombastic. Uh, Upgrade was, like, you know, great fun, but it was, like, really just, you know, always at volume level of like 10 whereas I think uh the invisible man it's a real evolution in his career because it's it is it's just that opening 10 minutes is just the the, the simplicity of it Uh, and the and the the restraint is really what I think uh makes that film work so well obviously it escalates as the film goes on uh but um yeah it's going to be really interesting to see what he does next because I think that was a real uh next step in his career and his style and Jordan what was your favorite 2020 experience so far look like as one didn't come out at the cinema um although it should have and I wish I got to see it at the cinema but my favorite film from this year has been Uncut Gems it is so incredibly tense and frenetic and there's this energy that rolls through the whole picture that is just so exciting to see I I wish it came out at the cinema so you could really see how they play with the sound apparently and uh, I guess the cinematography is great but I think it is a real shame that it didn't get it here if we look at the popularity of things like Marriage Story and The Irishman that came out these films made by filmmakers that love to screen within cinemas deserve to be seen in cinemas because they have that next level of finesse about them whether it's 
an incredible script or, you know, perfect, pitch-perfect performances or the cinematography and sound or just the directing, that they're kind of step above that deserves, you know, perfection in watching. It doesn't, does, it doesn't need you on your couch with your phone with, you know, like a food delivery happening or a housemate walking through or a child screaming. It needs your full attention. So I think given the fact that it had, you know, insane, insane stamina from, from the States, should have been nominated for awards, I think it would have done so well at the movies. I think it's a real missed opportunity. Yeah, look, that that film is is incredible, and um, you know, it really reminded me of just that that sort of cinema of anxiety, which is like you know, something like uh, Scorsese's After Hours uh, yeah. comes to mind, and uh, just the other sort of moments of the, the characters just keep making things worse for themselves, and they just cannot pull their head above the water. And um, yeah, it's just a, a fantastic film, and uh, the the Safdie brothers, I think, are geniuses. That the, the, yeah, all their work is 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 incredible. So moving on from the shorter 2020 season let's touch on the um our favorite experience from the 2019 cinematic season that people can now access at home in isolation i mean it's hard to distill down to just one thing i had a lot of brilliant cinema experiences throughout the the year with you know once upon time in hollywood the farewell at astra i'd encourage everyone to um check those out but i've got to say that the the absolute best um, cinema experience I had was um, Pedro Almodovar's Pain and Glory. Um, oh, yeah. It's a great film. Uh, I just thought the it was had this wonderful melancholy humour to it, but despite, you know, the, a, a fairly rich melancholy, there, there's this warmth and, like, comforting texture to the film. Could watch for hours and hours, but, I mean, I was already loving the kind of autobiographical approach of it and the intercutting and timelines, but... When it, you know, no spoilers, but when it got to the very last shot and how it sort of brought everything together, I was, I was genuinely flawed and like, and I verbally, I verbally said, wow, when the credits came up. Um, and, you know, I, I, I tend to really like things that are quite meta. Again, not giving away any spoilers, but you have uh, Almodova reflecting on his life fictionally. And part of this reflection on his life is his own relationship with Antonio Banderas. Uh, Antonio Banderas plays the fictional version of Amadova, who is then also interacting with the fictional version of Banderas. And then you have the actor who is fictionally, who is playing the fictional version of Banderas, then acting out the fictional version of Amadova. It's Christopher and, Nolan's Pain and Glory. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> but like, unlike. Unlike Christopher Nolan, who, you know, you're quite aware of complexity, at no point does this really make itself entirely obvious. You're not really thinking about how meta it is in the same way you would watching one of his films or, like, you know, Spike Jones adaptation. It's not until everything kind of ends and you think about it. But, yeah, I just, I just, that was definitely one of the richest cinema experiences I had last year. This is such an obvious choice, and especially for me, I think, because I pioneered it for 38 weeks, but... The number one watch for me of last year is Parasite, hands down. I mean, aside from the fact that it is it is tense and it is a mystery and it twists and turns and you can't pick what's happening next, there's a sense of community around it that I haven't felt with any other film where this film could be ruined so easily with so many spoilers, but it was like this huge pact that the audience had that they would keep it a secret and keep every detail a secret. So even people that were coming to see it, you know, a month ago, had no idea even though it was released in June last year. 
the groundswell of, of, of support that that film had from uh, the uh, distributor in Australia, Madman, and also the exhibitors uh, in this country, because we were one of the first countries to, 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 to release it quite early on, um, and then to have that support from the audience uh, where it just kept playing and kept playing and more people would see it and more people would talk about it and, and not give away any of the uh, the mysteries of the film. It, it speaks to the, the, the connective tissue uh, that is the, the ultimate cinema experience where just everything is working in harmony. You've got, you know, a fantastic distributor supporting the film. You've got exhibitors uh, supporting uh, foreign language cinema being uh, projected uh, on the big screen and uh, you've got an audience who maybe you know, initially wouldn't have thought that a film from South Korea was uh, going to be uh, something that they had to see. Uh, but, you know, that I think speaks to uh, the, the great connective environment that is communal cinema going. I mean, what I really loved about that film, um, I mean, it came out in the middle of 2019 and we did extremely well with it. And like you were saying, it just kept going and going and going and we held it on screens for so long. Um, but then after the Oscars... It was if it was a brand new release. Film, film. Yep. So, yep. Like, we got we got two releases out of it. It's almost just like a perfect symphony of film release yeah. all around the world. Uh, yeah, and it, look, twenty nineteen was I think you know such that that, that kind of tail end of twenty nineteen. I think. Parasite was the kind of catalyst for it. It just saw so many great films come out uh, in, in that last period of uh, 2019 and that mid to last period. Um, for me, though, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood really yeah. was the encapsulation of that. And, you know, uh, you know, cards on the table, I'm, I'm obviously a big Tarantino fan. I, I love his work. Um, but that film, there was just something going on in that movie that isn't in any other Quentin Tarantino film. There's this um, kind of, I think, uh, I have referred to it as this sort of like frequency that's being transmitted uh, kind of almost subliminally. In it. And if, if you can pick up on these little uh, flourishes uh, in the way that it, you know, engages with that period of time. Uh, it subverts different periods. It's this commentary on Hollywood. It's this commentary on culture. Uh, and it's just a film that is so layered that it just, you know, rewards repeat viewing. And, uh, you know, I really having been able to be involved with the 35mm season of it at the Astor is, is still one of the career highlights uh, for me and I think always will be. The film is almost like uh, coming off the screen literally and, and uh, you know, gestating with the building and, and the audience and it was just this whole bubble that was being created around that that film and, and the, um, the adoration around that film. So, um, yeah, I, a really, really key moment. I love those performances where you walk out and you just get like, smacked in the face with like, oh my God, like, I know we all know Leonardo DiCaprio is a great actor, but like, he is a spectacular actor in this and Brad Pitt as well. And just this, this love letter to a period of time, it's, it's really special to watch, I think. It's so interesting too, because it, it, it weaves in this sort of meta commentary on those sort of buddy movies as well too, where, you know, something like The Wild Bunch, where the characters are kind of out of step within their own time and how they yeah. sort of support each other through that whilst the world is changing around them and they're not too sure if they're going to make it out. And that's, I think, one of the great things about that movie is even though it does, re, you know, reward repeat viewing, that first time you see it, you have no idea where it's going and what's going to happen mm -hmm. to these characters because you know you're in this sort of like unreliable time zone where 
history is being subverted and things are being changed. So there was, you know, a real sense of palpable concern about where are these two characters going? Are they on a collision course with destiny like a lot of the, you know, old buddy cop movies are or the old kind of buddy movies are like the Wild Bunch? You know, the Wild Bunch don't, no, spoil alert, the Wild Bunch don't make it out. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, yeah, uh, it's it's something I think it's, it's, it's a really interesting film from Tarantino and, you know, wh- whilst I've always been a, a card-carrying fan, I'll, I'll admit some of his, you know, works are, uh, are, are, are not as, as, as strong as they could be, uh, but this he just really knocked it out of the park. What I was liking about what you were saying, Zach, is the, this idea of it, it not feeling like the typical Tarantino um, or something different about it, and I felt like he almost had this meta commentary on his own use of violence in the in the sense of when I was watching it in the cinema, I was dreading the ending because mm. uh, you know I, 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 we we know what happens to Sharon Tate in real life, um, we know what the Manson murders involved, and I was generally dreading the violence that was to come. Mm. And it got it, it sort of gets to the end that doesn't necessarily happen, but the the violence that ensues, you're almost ecstatic about it. You were initially dreading the violence, and then you were really happy the way the violence happened. What What are we meant to be feeling about violence? Is you know, it's okay when it's the bad guys. It's not okay when it's the good guys. And even the way we kind of root for characters that are morally complex. You know, Brad Pitt's character he is, by all accounts, not necessarily a, a, a good guy, mm. um, but we end up loving him. And that that kind of um, conflict of what we're supposed to feel about things I, I kind of adored that about the film and I th- the, the 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 meta commentary I think even goes deeper sometimes where you know is Rick Dalton Quentin Tarantino yeah right yeah you know like someone who <laughs> like you know was that that used to be the kind of wonder kid and then has seen things kind of change around him and is still you know, still, still a great performer and still, still a great creative. But the, as the world is changing around him and he's trying to hold on maybe to the past and, and try to adapt, and, you know, that, that, that really kind of came out uh, to me on one, one of the kind of subsequent viewings I had and that, that kind of idea that they're just kind of slouching toward this inevitable conclusion but they're completely, you know, not in control of their own destiny is I think, yeah, it's, I think it's going to be explored more. I think that's a film that is going to be explored for many, many years. Just to humble brag kind of as like I was lucky enough to see Once Upon a Time at the Cinerama Theatre on its opening day last year. Um, what? Which was insane. Was in yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's already in 70. Yeah. Um, and like the audience cheered when the, the scene happened at the end, but the kind of best thing was walking out afterwards, being in the middle of Hollywood and all of these relics that they used in the film still exist, still yeah. are around, half are abandoned, but getting the juxtaposition of just kind of walking around being around all of these kind of landmark features as well and and exploring the city from that point of view as well that was that was pretty special pretty cool i i I treated it as this idea that the cinema was being transported back to that period and we we, you know we had movie posters from that uh year for other films in the cinema uh we had american candy on sale a little bit of a curated pre-show one of those moments where you just can can feel a film influencing uh, the industry, and you know, and you know, it, not just the assets too. I think there were so many different cinemas uh, around the country that did unique things, and the, the idea that this this film that speaks about a love of Hollywood really connected with people that could understand what it was going on about, and, and that sort of like love song uh, to that era. And if you picked up on it, I think you know, it was something very special. 
And then uh, I guess uh, moving into 2020, when all this sort of madness ends, what are we what are we really excited about? I'm super excited about June. I grew up with my brother watching the David Lynch one on VHS constantly and being terrified. My brother's quite older than me. And so now I finally feel like I get to watch a version that hopefully won't scare the crap out of me by one of my favourite directors with so many of my favourite people in it. Can we all, can we all take a bet on the runtime of that film? I'm, I'm going to bet uh, three and a half hours. I'm going to do 224. I think considering he's splitting it in two, yeah, I'm going around the two, the two, two and a half hour mark. On one of the special edition DVDs, there is the uh, the rough cut assembly of, of of David Lynch's Four Hours of June, uh, and that, my friends, is is something that you need to see. Is it is it better than the the original version? No. It's uh, just, uh, it's, uh, just something, just, just something that you need to see. Really, it's a, a words can't really describe it. It's uh, just, a, just a, it's just a vibe. It's a vibe. I mean, I've got to, I've got to copy you, Jordan. Uh, June has definitely got to be my most anticipated. I think more so. I'm, I'm excited just to see another film from um, Villeneuve. I was sort of looking at like the past ten years and like my favorite films of the decade and. Nearly every single one of his films came up, and I was yeah. just—I I, I hadn't really thought about it in that way. From Incendies to Sicario, Blade Runner, uh, Prisoners. I remember seeing Prisoners and just being absolutely floored by it. I think I saw Arrival six times. I just—I yeah. couldn't stop. And, I, and Blade Runner twenty forty nine to me is just—it's it, something that I've watched a couple of times now, and it's—it's it's just so good. It's just—it it, it had no business being that good. Um, one of the things I'm looking forward to the most, and I think it's going to, you know, really just generate a lot of positivity in 2020. We we need a lot of positivity, and we, we need a lot of uh, good vibes. Bill and Ted face the music, and if 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 one man can save 2020, it is Keanu Reeves, in my opinion. One hundred percent. He's what we need through these dark, dark times. I have no idea what that film is about. Who, who is directing, actually? I have no idea. I, uh, look, I just stopped at Keanu. So yeah. uh, that's, uh, <laughs> I just said Keanu. Okay, done. Good. Yeah, I'm there. Excellent. That wraps it up for our second episode. Join us next time as we do a little deconstruction on Westerns and give a recommendation you can watch at home for free, as well as a few other titles to fill out the must-see gems of the genre. 